Digital Drift, episode 18, recorded Sunday the 9th of March 2014, X-Men The Last Stand. A major pharmaceutical company has developed a way to suppress the mutant X gene permanently. They're calling it a cure. There's nothing to cure. Nothing's wrong with any of us for that matter. You of all people know how fast the weather can change. Did you find what you were looking for? source of the cure is a mutant more powerful than you Logan! gee something woke her but she has to be controlled you know sometimes when you cage the beast i can't do this the beast gets angry you have no idea you have no idea what is upon us now Fury that this world has never witnessed. Magneto's got an army out there. You got a war, you might not come home. She might not come home. You ready for that? We're not kids anymore. Hey, I'm not your father. If you want to go, be sure it's what you want. It's time we make our choice. If you're with us, then be with us. to cure us but I say we are the cure look at me G we can help you we can fix it we can make it like it was stay with me deep discussion and entertaining analysis of movies games and media culture welcome to the digital drift We're back to review the third X-Men movie, this time directed by Brett Ratner, arguably the lowest ebb in the series, and certainly the one that made us the angriest so far. Berserker rages, primed and ready to unleash. Hello, Sharon. Hello. This film cost $210 million, relative to the $75 million of the first and $110 million of the second, so that's coming on for twice as much as X-Men 2. On viewing, it's not entirely clear where all this extra money went, aside from the lucrative contracts for Halle Berry and Hugh Jackman. Oh, speaking of lucrative contracts, um, Halle Berry said she wouldn't return after X-Men 2 unless her uh, role was substantially uh, increased. And then she made Catwoman and became less picky. <laughs> well, to be fair, that was a, a headline role. She was, you know, the main character. Yeah. Uh, either way, at the time of release, it was one of the most expensive films ever made. X-Men 3, that is, not Catwoman. And still only cost 10 million less than 2012's The Avengers. It was written by Simon Kinberg, who contributed to Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Jumper, Sherlock Holmes, the good one, that is, Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, and X-Men Days of Future Past. Along with Zach Penn, who contributed to Last Action Hero, Inspector Gadget, Elektra, The Incredible Hulk, and The Avengers. Crucially, though, it would appear that the better works with Zach Penn's name attached were substantially rewritten by Shane Black, Edward Norton, and Joss Whedon. 
In other words, he's okay at story framework, but if you want character development in dialogue, you may as well ask the cat. Ratner was brought in after British producer-director Matthew Vaughan, the director of Layer Cake, Stardust and Kick-Ass, left after creative differences with Fox. On inspection, it appears that they wanted the film rushed out to hit a late May 2006 release date, and Vaughan saw no way to deliver a work of quality. Ratner had no such qualms. There's something about Ratner's work, and... This seems to be a universal case. He's worth $65 million, as I said above. Um, people love his films even though they're shit. Or at least they go and see his films in droves even though they're shit. I'm just thankful he hasn't made much since X-Men 3. Maybe he just hasn't needed to. I was going to say, with that kind of salary, he uh, possibly hasn't needed to. Yeah. Vaughan was also not the first director as Brian Singer, director of X-Men 1 and X-Men 2, and X-Men 7, departed early in the projects to direct divisive love letter to Richard Donner's Superman, Superman Returns, which is an action he said later that he regretted. He felt before watching X-Men 3, during watching X-Men 3, and most definitely after watching X-Men 3, I should have done that. Joss Whedon was considered, but he was too busy being fired from the Wonder Woman movie that never happened. Let's not mince words here. This movie is a mess. A complete and total mess. Delivered incompetently, sloppily, without any understanding of the multiple themes and allegories within. Screwed up, incomplete, and just plain baffling character arcs. And a forced ending to a series that seems to just have kept going anyway. Zack Penn defended the divergences from the original Dark Phoenix story, stating that the Phoenix was not a firebird-shaped cosmic force because it didn't fit into the world, and that Cyclops did not have as much screen time as Wolverine. It's not so much not as much screen time as Wolverine. He got 4 minutes 40 seconds. Anyway, he didn't have as much screen time as Wolverine because the latter was more popular. And with Cyclops, you can't see his eyes. It's a harder character to relate to for the audience. Killing Cyclops was Fox's decision based on the availability of actor James Marsden, who was cast in Singer's Superman Returns. The studio considered killing him off-screen with a dialogue reference, but Kinberg and Penn insisted that Gene kill him, emphasizing their relationship. Xavier's death was intended to match the impact of Spock's demise in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Did it? Do I really need to answer that question? Logan, I have been and always will be your friend. As Fox felt the script called for a dramatic turning point, Kinberg and Penn were originally cautious but grew to like the idea of killing off Xavier. You'll like what we tell you to like, Kinberg and Penn. They decided to write a post... That's Fox, not me. (laughs) They decided to write a post-credit scene suggesting the characters return for a sequel. So they defied Fox. As the studio was simultaneously developing X-Men Origins Wolverine, limitations were set on which mutants could be used for cameo appearances in X-Men 3 in an attempt to avoid risking character development for Wolverine. Fortunately, there was no risk of character development for Wolverine. Gambit initially appeared in the Battle of Alcatraz Climax with the X-Men, but the writers did not want to introduce a fan-favorite character and not be able to do him justice. Oh, no, far better to introduce him in Wolverine and not do him justice. Absolutely. Dodged a bullet there, didn't they? Yes. Charged with, uh, what's wrong with these bullets? They're exploding! Kinberg reasoned there just wasn't enough space. Do you know what? Well, maybe make your film slightly longer than an hour and 39 minutes! 
I suspect if they'd been asked to find space for Wolverine to fight a polar bear and then the X-Men to take on a giant robot spider, space would have been found. That would have been worth some of the $210 million this cost. I don't know, polar bears aren't that expensive. For her dual role as Jean Grey slash Phoenix, mm, Famke Janssen extensively researched disassociative identity disorders and split personalities to make her performance convincing. Sadly, Brett Ratner did not. As originally scripted, the Golden Gate Bridge sequence was originally in the middle of the film. Magneto was going to have moved it to Alcatraz Island to free Mystique. Oh yeah, that's... Do you know, do you understand the meaning of the term low profile, Eric? <laughs> Let me tell you what low profile is not. It's not moving monuments when you could just take a boat. <laughs> As the facility would have been revived as a special mutant prison, the final battle was to take place in Washington, D.C., which was set to be home to Worthington Labs. Thus, Magneto's plan would have been twofold. Destroy the cure and take control of the White House. However, no, I believe the X-Men did that in X2. However, when Brett Ratner signed to direct, he decided the bridge sequence would create a more dramatic climax if moved to the end. Not, this is fucking stupid, we're not doing that. It would be more dramatic if we stuck it at the end. So the script was rewritten to have Alcatraz transformed into the Worthington Labs facility, which is somewhat... Oh, I've got to do this in a nerd voice. Which is somewhat nonsensical, since Alcatraz is a national monument and thus cannot be owned or altered by a private company. Yeah, because that's the only thing that doesn't make sense about X-Men 3. Mm. According to VFX supervisor John Bruno, about $35 million, a sixth of the film's budget, was wasted, sorry, spent on the Golden Gate sequence. This included constructing a full-scale section of the bridge that was about the size of a basketball court, and then using computer-generated imagery on the rest of the bridge and its background. Okay, so that's enough of the background of the film. Let's talk about what's in the film. Uh, you've got extensive notes, Sharon. I'm just going to let, let you go ahead and, and just, you know... The, I will say at least this film, like the first two, starts off strong. Doesn't it? It starts off with... Um, kind of. Young Worthing... Hang on. 20 uh, no, years, opens, oh, no, actually, yeah. No, 20 years ago with, thing is just creepy. But the, I was going to say. Young it's, it's, Warren Worthington trying to saw off his wings is a genuinely chilling and effective scene. And it feels like that was maybe left over from Matthew Vaughan's uh, edits on the script in the uh, story. But that's the thing, and I suspect that this is one of the reasons why I find this film so frustrating and why it is the one of the three, the first three, that pisses me off so much. Because the first one had nothing behind it. Mm -hmm. You know, as we discussed, there had been no superhero movies of this type before. The second one actually built on that and got stronger. And there was much to credit it with. Although, in retrospect, we can see that it was rather flawed. and Botched at the end. Yeah, something of a drop-off at the end. But overall, for a second outing, they did well. They had nowhere to go but up. And yet, you watch this and you can literally pick out the elements, the scenes and the, the ideas that were good and would have provided them with a great framework for building something that was a, a worthy climax to this uh, trilogy as it was appears to have been conceived. Yeah. Every single ball they had, they dropped with a plum. Um, 
I mean, the the opening scene where uh, Eric and Charles turn up to talk. To you mean him. creepy CG Botox, Eric and Charles? Yes, <laughs> indeed. Like um, from the word go, when watching it, I was like, uh oh, uh oh, this film's gonna suck. Yeah. I Carry mean, a- apart from anything else, I don't honestly think that Patrick Stewart. I mean, Ian McKellen, yes, probably does look his age. Patrick Stewart, you could probably have got away with a, a bit of makeup. A wig. A wig would have just looked bad. <laughs> he would have looked like Fester in the <laughs> It just would have looked wrong. Um, but, but not, yeah, CG Botox, was that really necessary? They, their faces looked just, if you're having uncanny valley feelings about actual live action performances, that's not good. Yeah, it's distracting. It's yeah. it's the same thinking that went into the beginning of the the uh, of the fifth Twilight movie. Mm. It's like let's let's stick the, the the kid's face on the baby. That's not going to be super creepy. Indeed. Um, and then moving on from the incredibly weird visuals at this point, um, all the dialogue here is just so much exposition. Um, there is so much as you know in this film. It made me want to punch things. Um, you know, it's, I, I think the, their opening salvo is something along the lines of Eric goes, let's go in and grab her or something like that. And Charles goes, Oh, Eric, you know, that's not my way. For goodness sake, they've known each other for years. They wouldn't need to have that conversation. This is apparently like 1981, and allegedly, if we're to believe Charles saying that he met Eric in, in when he was 17, they've known each other since either the late 40s or early 50s. That really doesn't match up with things. No, and of course, it sure as shit doesn't match up with X-Men First Class, wherein, uh, by the end of the film, Charles is most definitely not bald, and most definitely not walking, and most definitely not buds with Magneto. So I'm going to go ahead and assume that a lot of stuff gets changed in between these times. Universe A, folks. Universe A. Yeah, I mean, the the characters just... Magneto's motivation has always been all over the place. We have established this. Um, but Charles, to this point, has been sort of relatively consistent as a character, and, and you can get a, a reasonable handle on who he is and how he does things. But... In the course of this one conversation, he chides Jean for reading their thoughts without permission, then goes into her head and shuts off several portions of her brain. Yeah. Is it get- just me who sees a little bit of a discrepancy there in, you know, do as I say, not as I do? Yeah, we can talk about Charles's approach to psychology in this film and only this film later on, but uh, it's disturbing. Yeah, it's it's good in a way because it makes it that much easier to kick this one under the sofa and go, you know what? Yeah, that this one happened. didn't fucking happen. Yeah, that's the thing. I I, I can guarantee that by the end of uh, X, I don't know much about the film. But I want to speculate about it, but X Men: Days of Future Past gonna cancel this one out. Yep. First class con- cancels out most of it, to be honest. Yeah. Then we go to uh, jump to uh, ten years. Uh, Prior to the beginning of, well, if, if we're, in terms of timeline, in the future, in the future, yeah, there will be sentinels. Now, there, <laughs> no, there won't be sentinels. Yeah, well, there will in the danger room. 
They they couldn't afford a proper center. This is oh, the first yeah. time they uh, um, they were going to put a uh, Danger Room program in the first X Men film. Too much money decided against it. Second one they slashed it down by ten million. Didn't have time and uh, money to put in a Danger Room section. They put in this one. It's like really that cost that much money. Why would they give them a Sentinel to fight in the Danger Room when the Sentinels don't really exist in real life? And they know nothing about Days of Future Past. Yeah. Because it's fan service and fast what, special. And, yeah. What do we need to train these kids to go up against in this world of diplomacy and medical approaches to mutations? Let's teach them to kill giant robots. Is this the worst sequence in X-Men 3? <laughs> this, this is the, the best, best sequence, sequence in X-Men 3. <laughs> I don't think there is a best sequence. No, no, it was this. Just that the fact that Wolverine is so casually tough. The the supposed finale, but we'll come to that. Well, they're using teamwork, which is something they almost never do in any of the other films. Colossus uh, gives his power to Rogue for a brief while to make her invulnerable, and Kitty phases with Iceman. Although that kind of contradicts when Storm has a go at Logan for not apparently using teamwork. He was working with Colossus as a pair, which is exactly what the others have been doing. Storm, not a mathematician. Not really. But (laughs) one thing, one thing that I will say. There's only, there's only one way this could end. Either you die or I do. Or I do. Um, one of the things that I have criticized so far, and I must give this a teeny tiny weeny bit of credit for doing, because they don't really go anywhere with it. So they don't exactly maximise on what they've achieved. But they do actually hint at the anger that they keep talking about Rogue uh, Storm possessing. Mm-hmm. The fact that when they come out of the danger room, she basically reams Wolverine out in front of the students, which the, is... Sorry, say again. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember that happening in the film. Uh, Okay. She hauls Logan over the coals in front of the students. Doesn't matter, he's got a healing factor. Not, (laughs) it's not a professional thing to do, but it does hint at the fact that she is very frustrated by, by how things are going and that's how it comes out. I'm just Um, so full of anger. And then there's a, there's another scene in a bit where um, the cure is announced and her reaction is very angry and, Irrespective of the fact that I don't think Storm is really the mutant to be saying this cure is unnecessary, we don't want it, we don't need it, how dare they foist it upon us, when her mutation is A, entirely invisible, unless she's choosing to use it, and on the matter of choice, B, almost entirely under her control. And awesome. What about the kid who farts out of his face? What about the the um, kid who can't stop herself turning into lava? There was a really good issue of Ultimate X-Men, issue 41, where this young boy wakes up and his family have disappeared. And he goes out into the street and everyone's disappeared in the street. And he wanders around looking for uh, anyone to help him out. And he eventually finds his way to a cave uh, and Logan's in there. Logan's been sent by Charles to meet this boy and he gives the boy a beer and uh, Charles talks to him Logan's very grave about what has to happen and then Logan leaves the cave shortly afterwards having killed the boy this boy has got a power so 
terrifying that he could simply wink people out of existence without even thinking about it or knowing about it. And so Charles, in the Ultimate Universe, has him killed by his assassin, Logan. And that's a really horrible scenario, but it actually plays in and could play in very well with what happens within this film. But, of course, it requires a delicate touch and understanding of what you're talking about and the awe-inspiring power, uh, both at the control of the both at the hands of the government and the mutants themselves. Yeah. I mean, we, we, there are a lot of ethical issues raised in this. And we know that because the kids are having an ethics lesson in class. In the first, what is it? In the first one, it's physics, isn't it? And this is the film that's all about explaining how mutations work. What are they studying in the second one? History. And it's about how, what's led them to this situation and what, you know, what has put them in this position. And then it's ethics and it's all about the, mm. uh, the moral implications of what their powers mean for themselves and the rest of the human race. However, all those ethical issues that get raised, they don't go anywhere. They don't do anything with them. Better to have more fighting sequences. Um, terrible fighting sequences. It's important, actually, that we'll mention this now during the cure scenario. You realised when there were people outside the uh, cure clinics picketing them and saying, we don't need a cure, we don't need a cure. What did you realise? Right, I doubt very much that this was intentional. It's more of an accidental but alarming parallel. Yeah, but it, it kind of comes across like... I, I. I don't know if really pro-life is the way to put it, but anti-choice or anti-choice picketing outside um, abortion clinics. And then Rogue sort of sneaks in to have her operation done so she can shamefully shed this, this mutation she's got that's otherwise going to ruin her life. And she makes that choice. And, and Storm saying, how dare anyone make that choice? It, somebody with guts and understanding of the situation would be able to make that parallel fairly starkly. But, of course, guts and understanding are not two things present in this film. No, not really. Uh, and, and again, with the, the idea of the sort of these little flashes of Storm being characterised, there is a shade of that when Cyclops is reintroduced and the fact that he is falling apart following Jean's death. Yeah. That's not a bad start for actually getting somebody who so far managed to get through two entire films without really being a whole person yeah. um, to give him some characterization, to give us some understanding of, of who he is, what makes him tick, what's devastating him at this point. But it goes nowhere. In fact, in his case, it goes less than nowhere because all they're doing is setting him up for slaughter. There's something very significant about the X-Men comic in terms of uh, gender equality as well. There really aren't that many books out there with similar levels of male-female characters and protagonists. Justice League occasionally, depending on the the, uh, actual roster and who's writing it, has more of a focus on stronger female characters uh, alongside the male characters. But, I mean, Avengers has struggled over the years to have more than a couple I mean, you know, I could reel a bunch off of the top of my head. Um, Ms. Marvel, Scarlet Witch, Tigra, Mockingbird. But by and large, the X-Men has been a really nicely divided lineup. I mean, after, after, say, it really started in the 80s. 
there were sort of like there were token females in uh, the original lineup and then the 70s lineup. But the 80s were when it, they really started introducing Rogue and Shadowcat and Psylocke. Polaris took more of a, a, a center stage after appearances previously, and that's a huge deal. That is a huge way of getting female audiences reading comics that are otherwise action comics. You know, for the perception is of Marvel comics are just being wham kapow, which diminishes the um, often fairly impactful, especially when you're a teenager and there's bugger all else out there to actually tell you this stuff in an entertaining fashion, thought-provoking social allegory. Not to mention giving male comics readers an understanding of the fact that there are women out there doing shit, not yeah. just, you know, men getting stuff done and women off somewhere. And to their credit, the films, as bad as they get, even this one, do give uh, the females a, a decent uh, crack of the whip. In terms of numbers, yes. Numbers, yes. But that's about all they do. Um, even actually, I remember complaining about the original X-Men. Um, Charles calls them his X-Men, but this is obviously before you've seen First Class, you don't know anything about them. He's got Cyclops, he's got Storm, and then there's a woman named Jean Grey who isn't really allowed out. How are they the X-Men? <laughs> when, when did he arrive upon this name? Mm. There's so, it's such a sparse team before Wolverine and Rogue uh, join in. It doesn't really validate the name X-Men. There's a fairly unpleasant uh, level of, uh, um, what would be the word, fear of female seductresses. Oh, God, in yes. There's a, well, Mystique and Phoenix are both treated in this really patronizing, slightly paranoid way. You are female and therefore duplicitous, and we know this because you have boobs. And we know you have boobs because we can see them because of the costume we put you in. <laughs> For like all your kind... Ye are, are false. false. <laughs> right. Mystique's interview with the chap who they've only put in there to remind you of Hannibal Lecter. Oh, yeah, he was the guy who pisses off Hannibal Lecter. Yes, he was. Um, I'm having that, an old friend for dinner. That almost seems to have been set up deliberately to sort of make you think, aha, they're treating her as this incredibly dangerous, um, insane, psychopath person. Um, right. <laughs> when she's having her little interview with him, she refers to him as Meat Sack. <laughs> You're right? not a robot. <laughs> Has the kill all humans agenda absorbed her so much that she's forgotten that she is also made of flesh. You're not Bender. She also spits at him. Homo sapien. Indeed. Which, that kind of does make sense. They then expand that to when she's in the uh, truck and she switches into um, the, the security guard and then into a little girl uh, who they get to say, I'm going to kill you in this really sort of chilling way. And it's like, ah, oh, remember, she can change form. And then they pan back around onto her. And it's Mystique, the blue-skinned shape-changer. Yes, we know. Phoenix also runs into this bullshit as well. She says to Scott, 
Take off your glasses. I will fix your... I have fixed your power. You can't hurt me. He takes off his glasses. She kisses him. And then you get to see her eyes behind him. And she goes... It's like that bit in The Shining. She goes all corpsified. And then he goes... And then I think she kills him or something evaporates him. Because that's what we see happen to other people. I spent the entire film going... He's not dead, though, is he? I mean, you know, Cyclops is going to come back. We haven't actually seen him die. We never saw the body. And if you haven't seen the body, it's not the case. But he's really dead. And it's a shit way of getting that across because there's no motivation for it. There's no understanding of this Phoenix character. And then later when Charles explains it, there's a comic called... It makes even less sense. It makes less sense. There's a comic called Rising Stars, a really, really good one, which I've mentioned before, where a character named Stephanie Mass is a sort of mousy and submissive and she has a split personality like Gollum and her dominant personality uh, critical mass is the one with all the superpowers and she's the super aggressive one and that sort of seems to be what they've done with Xavier here but they've they've sexed up the phoenix so she's like uh, uh, super that's how you know she's evil because yeah. she's gone all sexy like she's all like you know uh, uh, what would be the word rapacious yes that will yeah. do. Uh, yeah, there, there, there seems to be a genuine uncomfortable feeling of, of them not really knowing how to put across Phoenix's inner turmoil, as it were. In the in the comic book, the original Phoenix comes bursting out of the water, and it's a cosmic entity, and she's pretty much a blank slate. She's um, confused about where she is, and it takes a long time of other people meddling with the Phoenix Force and trying to exploit it and exploit her and use her as a weapon before she finally turns and goes, oh, fuck this, enough of this. But the way they've written it, I understand that you're not going to make her a cosmic entity. I kind of like the idea that it was always present within Jean, but they're very confused about the way that they put across this other entity. There also appears to be no discourse or no relationship between Jean and this other personality. She just sort of switches in and out. She just seems to be unaware of... The Jean we know almost seems like a, a, a mask that the Phoenix has been wearing. A construct that Charles basically created yeah. by locking right. off. See, that's that's the other thing, and I'll, I'll all right, we'll we'll jump to this, and I'll go into this go now because what what you've said about um, uh, Stephanie and Critical Mass in Rising Stars, there is something very specific about Stephanie's childhood that has led her to be um, yeah. to have dissociative personality disorder, and. The powers are kind of incidental to that. The mental illness side of her is part of her. It's She is a, a fully rounded character and that is an element of her and the powers are secondary to that and they yeah. are just worked into that side of how her mind works. So it would have been the case with her, psychologically speaking, either way the powers were simply added to the uh, the story. Exactly. And she was she was abused and she had a very traumatic childhood and that's how she got to that position. Jean is introduced as a quite naughty girl. You know, the way the, the way she converses with Charles at the beginning. Yeah. Oh, no, you're not like me. Look at what I can do. And then she moves all well, the cards. She's like Voldemort. She's like Tom Riddle. She's, she I is. Make them hurt. But why was Tom that way? Tom was that way because he'd been abandoned, because he'd been institutionalised, because he'd been um, surrounded by children who didn't understand him and were cruel to him. Now, some of those elements may have been present in Jean's upbringing, but we see no evidence of this. She lives with her mother and father, so we know she's had at least some input of a, a, a caring or at least protected 
childhood upbringing. It's a major that's, that's been relatively a comic. Her parents common. don't at all fit the type uh, that would actually foster a child like that. Absolutely, and they don't. They don't seem to know anything about her powers, so it's unlikely that they have been cruel to her on that basis. And it's redundant for us to say because they can do whatever they want with the characters, but not, none of that is in the comic. She has yeah. a good, loving upbringing, and that is what makes her so forthright as a character. Indeed, indeed. But then Charles comes in, locks off the powers. And be a good girl. Conceal, don't feel. Well, indeed. Oh my God! Her personality gets shut away with the powers, right? Jean then goes on to have what appears to be quite a productive, relatively uh, normal in inverted commas, but certainly a, a life in which she is loved, and very specifically in which she loves. Why would she grow and develop into somebody who has this secondary part of her personality, which is furious and rage-filled and angry? And also, given that Charles seems to have been monitoring her for all these years and was well aware that this was happening, why did he allow it to continue? Okay. (laughs) Sorry. Only Wolverine can hear you right now. <laughs> Sorry. But that was that was such a huge if if he had tweaked a few things so that her powers would not come to the fore and then had nothing more to do with her until all of a sudden Phoenix burst onto the scene, that I could probably just about go with. It would be remarkably irresponsible and unethical of him to do so, but I could just about accept that. But Charles is not an inept therapist. Certainly not from what we've seen in uh, X-Men First Class. I can't imagine James McAvoy's Charles doing what is being suggested here. No, and the fact that he he almost, it, I would say admits, but it's not even an admission. He's not saying to Logan, this is what I did, and I'm now starting to realise it was a really bad idea. He's just saying, this is what I did, this is what I had to do, yeah. and everything will be fine as long as nobody lets the Phoenix Force out of her head. This yes, because that's going to work. This was Patrick Stewart's time to really act. He should have lost it at this point and expressed regret and the fact that this was a deep, dark secret and he realised that he shouldn't have been doing it uh, after a, a while, but that there was no way out and he had no one to talk to about it and no one that he could trust with it. And there was this awesome power living in the same house as him and he is afraid of Gene. But that would take guts and understanding of the situation. Two things not present in this movie. Not in the slightest blaming Patrick Stewart for this, by the way. He cannot work with what he is not given. But, I mean, it's not that Charles has never been known to do morally dubious things in the comics. I mean, that, you know, he's, he's, does the whole onslaught. Thing. Yeah, some of the, the, the he, danger room thing scenario in um, uh, Joss Whedon's Gifted. Yeah, what you described Data. about the the um, the incident with the child that he basically has Wolverine terminate because he's too dangerous to be allowed to live. That's he, Ultimate Charles, who's slightly different, but not okay, that much but, different. Yeah. But my point being, there is form for it. There is there is a evidence. darkness within Charles Xavier. Uh, Onslaught didn't. Ju- <sighs> Okay, we can mention this because it's not really spoiling anything. It's a reference to a 1996 com- comic storyline. In X-Men Fatal Attractions, which is one of the uh, the really good 90s crossovers, and I actually do urge people to uh, track down some of the essential comic books from that six-issue series, I recommend these four. Uncanny X-Men 303 and 304, X-Men 25, and Wolverine 75. After Magneto... 
uh, takes on the UN and becomes a genuine threat to the world again. And after Colossus leaves the X-Men in anguish after the death of his sister to join Magneto's acolytes, Charles has a bit of a breakdown. They go to Avalon, Magneto's home that he's tried to retreat from the rest of the world, to track down Eric and stop him. Charles shuts down Eric's mind, blanks him, turns him into a drooling vegetable. And it's seen as a, a last resort scenario as a direct result of what Eric does to Logan, which is to tear the adamantium from his body. Something I know that they've been considering doing in the movies, but never really had the guts to actually perform because that would genuinely test the Wolverine character. You know, can he survive if his healing factor is, is pushed beyond its limit? He's broken at this point. So yeah, Charles shuts him down. In performing this extreme act of mental aggression, there is a silent price to be paid, and a portion of Eric's similarly dark and violent persona breaks away and becomes lodged inside Charles's mind. It festers there, unmentioned, for several years of continuity. Several years later, this uh, psionic creature named Onslaught busts out of Charles and tries to take over the Marvel Universe, and pretty much all the heroes have to die to defeat him. Onslaught is a fusion of all of Charles's repressed frustrations and Eric's ability to perform atrocious acts for a perceived greater good. And it's a really great way of showing that Charles Xavier, this saint-like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to Magneto's Malcolm X, is capable of making serious mistakes and also hiding those mistakes because he must always project a position of strength, something which... Cyclops could have actually related to him on something which Wolverine could have related to him on but they don't do that because it would require guts and understanding of characters and there wasn't enough time to do that in an hour and 39 minutes Another thing, actually, I mentioned this while we were watching it. In uh, Wolverine and the X-Men, the animated show, Wolverine's the one who has to take over leadership and becomes this stoic samurai type, very grave, and, and has to hold it together for the kids. Because Jean's apparently died, Scott's the one who's full of anger and rage and becomes this sort of the gun that Wolverine keeps on his team, but he's like a loose cannon and uh, he uh, can't... Re that was their opportunity to do that in this film. But they don't. They just get rid of Scott. There's lots that they could do with this and don't. I mean, I, this this whole thing about um, shutting off the Phoenix Force, I would be very surprised if the idea for that didn't come from somebody who has read the Onslaught storyline. Yeah. Because there are a lot of similarities. But if you look at how that it doesn't translate, when it's done in the comic, Eric is not a child and he has already done terrible things. Oh yeah, it's an it's a last ditch, like, there's nothing I can do anymore, Eric. Absolutely, it's not speculative, it's not we can't let this ability develop, because that is totally antithetical to everything Charles has always been about. Mm -hmm. It's not about killing people who have potential danger, it's about training them and teaching them to use their power and teaching them to harness it and control it, not let's shut it up in a box, cross our fingers and hope for the best, shall we? It's best that your mother repress her feelings, bury them deep down where they'll, where they'll never, never bother, bother anyone. Don't worry about it. When it does come out that the, there are huge 
huge ramifications to what he's done. It's still presented in a tone of... Um, well, Phoenix is evil. Uh, you did the well, right thing. That, that, yeah, exactly. That it's releasing it that's the danger, not the locking it up in the first place. Yeah. Now, you could say, well, you're just saying what the movie isn't and complaining about the fact that it didn't meet your standards. No, 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 no. That's mainly because what the movie is is nothing much in particular. There's almost nothing to talk about. It's nonsensical. It's gibberish. They don't know what they're doing. They it- delivered a rushed mess. There is no direction to this film. And it does appear to be almost entirely composed of exposition and bad puns. Exposition. The first few scenes with Charles, he he literally reminds us that he's psychic every few lines, just in case we've forgotten. Yeah. Notably, we get to meet briefly Olivia Williams playing Moira McTaggart here, who we can only assume is the daughter of Rose Byrne's Moira McTaggart of the same name in uh, X-Men First Class, because that way the age matches up. And uh, she tells us, this man here is in a permanent vegetative state. And then at the very end, that's the man that Charles body jacks. Again, slightly ethically questionable. Mm. But it is a bit like, remember this, kids, because this might be important later on. Yeah, she doesn't turn up for any other reason. At least she has the uh, Scottish accent, though. Oh, we have got any grease? Yes, we do. Then grease me up, woman! The other thing that they've done um, in three, which I protested about in one, and then they reversed in two, they have gone back to presenting mutants as powers rather than people. Yeah. Um, one of the things I really liked about two was that they were people first and the powers were secondary. Yeah. And they were integrated into who they were and how they lived their lives. And this is very much, look at what this person can do. What else can you tell us about them? Uh, look at what this other person can do. And they introduced this concept of classifying mutants by number for the first time, for no apparent reason other, other than, than to, to be able to she's say the scale. Jean is more powerful than Magneto. Which, by the way, is like Dragon Ball Z bullshit thinking. It's also ridiculous. How can you classify powers by such a simplistic uh, notion? What it's one through five. I mean, is it is it simply to do with levels of danger to people, to other people? In which case, you know, is it what? What about somebody whose power is not in any way um, threatening? That's a, a level one or a level zero. So that's most of them then. Yeah. What about a homicidal human being? Yeah, indeed. What about a homicidal mutant who can just make one long nail come out of his hand? What about Wolverine? What what grade would you say he is? Is he less powerful than Pyro? What's Batman? He's level five because he will beat everyone. <laughs> See, that's what I'm thinking, talking about. It really just comes down to who's more special than the rest, which is bollocks. It is. Very uh, ridiculous. Speaking and- of Wolverine, by the way, uh, there is that scene in X-Men 2 where he is allowed to unleash because he's protecting the children. And as we pointed out, was extremely well-crafted and actually has motivations uh, in an ethically sound place, despite the fact that Wolverine's going ballistic. However, in this, there's a scene where he carves up a bunch of the Brotherhood. Now, when I first saw it, I thought... This is really annoying me because that bloke's chucking bits of bone at Wolverine and what's he hoping? I'll throw bits of bone at Wolverine and I'll win. 
And that, to me, just seemed like nonsense. Like, the idea being that Magneto would say, nobody attack Wolverine. Dude's crazy. He got knives all over him. Just just don't even try. What actually troubles me about the scene now is entirely different. It's Logan's situation. To begin with, in X-Men 2, he's protecting the kids. In this, he's slaughtering the Brotherhood, who cannot kill him. He's unkillable. What have they got? Like, you know, oh, you shot bone daggers at me. Oh, that, that actually hurts quite a bit. And then, so he just like stab this guy, stab this guy, that guy, end your life, you're dead, blah, 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 blah. So that he can sneak into, like, oh, yeah, low profile again, sneak into Magneto's camp after murdering all of his sentries. He's asleep. No, he, wait, what? Oh, do you not know what death is? I totally know what it is. Let's back it up a little bit to talk about what a hero I am. However, they can't kill him. He really can kill them. All he has to do is punch them out with his adamantium hand. Just punch them, spark out. Knock them out so that they're no longer a threat to him. He doesn't have to slaughter them. He's not protecting anybody. And what does he achieve from, from sneaking in there? He manages to take out a number of very low-powered, most of them young, inexperienced mutants. He doesn't know anything about them. These guys are, are wastrels from the street. They're, you know, they're, they're Morlocks. They're confused kids. They've been uh, sent out to die by Magneto, and, and Wolverine's playing into that. That's fucking savage. In fact, very specifically, that is counter to how the Morlocks are presented when uh, Storm takes over leading them. Yeah. She fights Callisto, who turns up in here, and Storm brutally electrocutes and then we never see any aftermath to that. You never see Halle Berry afterwards going, oh, God, I've never actually killed someone with lightning before, apart from Toad. But apart from Toad... <laughs> you know what happens to a Toad when it's struck by lightning? That. Oh. <laughs> so, so yeah, there's uh, the, the, the casual attitude to the heroes dealing out death. It's really quite horrific. I mean, people were going apeshit about Superman smashing up buildings in uh, Man of Steel. X-Men 3, the murderous Wolverine and Storm. Even Beast, he's fucking snapping necks. And for what? Like I said, these, these are just um, kids who have, are being hunted and they're afraid and they don't know what to do. And they join the Brotherhood because it's right there before them. They don't know how to get into Charles Xavier's Westchester Academy in Posh Town. You know, behind this gated community. They don't have the contacts. They didn't have the opportunity. They're just unlucky. It's an appalling handling of a Shades of Grey situation. You mentioned Beast. Mm-hmm. One of the, one of the <laughs> things I can count on one hand, things that I did like, um, was Grammar. the... Uh, Kelsey Grammer was was really good at playing him, but specifically the fact that they have Hank McCoy as the uh, Secretary for Mutant Affairs, mm. um, even though he is effectively the Minister for Magic, but that's <laughs> by the by. Um, uh, but the, the fact Scotch. that um, Henry is known for being at odds with his mutant nature, yeah. specifically his mutant appearance. The fact that he is the first person who has to, the first mutant, sorry, who has to deal with the prospect of a cure. And his response to this is going to be, um, is going to have implications for all the other mutants. Um, and you, you have a shade of it in that scene where he meets Jimmy Leach and the, the blue fades off his hand. Yeah. 
you can see him almost desperately wanting it and knowing that politically it's the worst decision he could possibly make. Yeah. But again, what do they do with him? They put him in a leather suit and they make him go and punch dudes. Why? He's an entirely different type of character. He is not just Logan, but blue. Similarly, Rogue has been wanting this whole time. I've got to have this thing done. I've got to have this, you know, this cure. I've, I've got no chance of a life otherwise. I've never wanted these powers. Um, that seems to be set up for Rogue to to be wrestling with herself, like, oh my god, I've got, I've got to do this thing. But ultimately, it's a very selfish move because Professor Xavier has very few soldiers at his disposal uh not just soldiers but peacekeepers that's technically what the x-men are they're not there to fight they're actually there to quell uh combat scenarios although they are most often chucked in there to have a great big fight in comics that's not what xavier set them up for would it not have been much more impactful for rogue to be on the verge of getting the cure and then see that her x-men friends are all fighting and in, in many cases being injured and then go oh, sod this and run off and help them using the powers that she has even though it does mean a life of being condemned to that there's more people outside of her that she can help at the end of it i'm human again yay also that's not something that she appears to have thought through fully i'm human again and can therefore hold hands with my boyfriend because although she does mention the whole thing about you know i i can't touch anybody i can't experience a hug or a handshake handshake. and yes you can stop wearing those off the shoulder numbers and start (laughs) wearing something that covers your neck and you're sorted i mean it's it's relatively easily solved from that perspective i the intimacy thing that's fine i understand that but she comes back to the school for gifted youngsters which she is now going to have to leave because she isn't one anymore and she's when not exactly she a people person, next? so she can hardly be a liaison. Well, exactly. When when's she you know when's she going to see Bobby next? What's to say that once she's left, Bobby isn't going to go? Do you know what? Actually, I think I'd rather be with somebody who still understands the mutant condition. Because let's face it, you're not in that position anymore. And oh, again, hey, it's, Kitty. it's yeah, Kitty. It's because she's Ellen Page and the only good performer in this movie. Yeah, she pretty much is. No, totally, she is. No, no, there are good performers in there, but no, nobody provides a good performance. Except for Ellen Page. Um, but yeah, now this, again, this is a Shades of Grey situation. It's not us being super judgmental of Rogue and how could you do this? I understand why Rogue did that. But the fact that they didn't make any deal of uh, the fact that she just went, ah, oh, I had it done. And that, they make appeal. Yeah, no consequences no, at all. Yeah. It's a very easy decision. There's no shades of grey and uh, let's, you know, she effectively abandons Charles Xavier's crusade. Which is absolutely fine. And that's her choice. And she does say that, you know, this was my choice. This was something that I wanted to do. But again, it doesn't really seem to be something that is particularly thought through or explored or, you know, and and she's one of the main characters. If you're going to explore that concept with anybody, she's the person to do it with. She's not a weapon of mass destruction. No. But she can be of genuine help. And of course, as you know, if you've read your X-Men, there are times when the X-Men would have lost were it not for Rogue. So she's taking herself off the chessboard. 
Maybe she doesn't want to be used as a pawn. Maybe that's the point, but that's not a point they look at. No, it's not explored. Mm. Speaking of Kitty Pride, I'm the juggernaut, bitch. Oh, right. Okay, this this scene is another one of those examples of how they've they've done that thing, which in two was here's a little bit of background information that we've plucked out of the comics and the lore of the X Men, and we're just going to drop it in there. And if you see it, great. And if you don't, you don't. They do that in this, and they mess them up, and they do it twice with Juggernaut because there's the helmet when. He's busted out of the prison van. He's wearing a helmet, which Juggernaut wears in the comics, specifically to protect his mind from the invading force of Charles Xavier, who in the comics is his stepbrother. Why does he need that helmet if he's never met Charles Xavier? Never had anything to do with him. Oh, it, uh, that doesn't matter that much. It's, it's, it is a tiny thing. But then he meets Charles and he's not wearing the helmet. So it, why bother putting the helmet in? Well, in this, he's a it's born a mutant, same as in the Ultimate Universe. And he, he doesn't necessarily have any relationship to Charles. Same as Wolverine doesn't necessarily have any relationship to Deathstrike or Sabretooth in the first couple. They just didn't care all that much. Uh, but um, that's, but it's, it's the fact that this is evidence that they just didn't care all that much. That's the least problematic thing about Juggernaut in the entire film. The most problematic thing is that um, they're shipping <laughs> Mystique, Juggernaut, and Madrox to somewhere. <laughs> and um, they've got a guard with the cure, in you know, like a, a cure gun. Um, why not just cure them? Just, you know, like, okay, yeah, psst, psst, psst. you three are now humans, and we're going to take you to a normal prison where you will be tried for your actual crimes, but no longer will possess the weapons which make you more of a uh, a special danger to society. What the fuck are they doing letting them keep their powers? Unless they're trying to lure Magneto in, in which case it, no, they weren't. That wasn't the point of this one. The only reason that guy has the gun is so that Magneto can get hold of Juggernaut and Madrox to be used for two completely pointless action sequences... Oh, by the way, if the NSA are tracking them, how come they didn't notice that this giant cluster of mutants then wandered off yet stayed in the same forest while they were scanning their bodies and they're, they're all Madrox? What the fuck? Did they start watching them from 6pm that night? Or what? It only exists so that Raven can be robbed of her powers and for Magneto to go, ugh, what a shame, she's one of them now. And bugger off is like, right, great. So, so he doesn't have any he literally sees people as either mutants or humans and he can't actually relate to you if you're no longer if you no longer possess the ability to shapeshift or do whatever the fuck raven does he doesn't see her as a person anymore he dehumanizes or demutantizes her which makes him not a shades of gray character but a crazy person a crazy evil scumbag which is obviously related to what he does at the end of x-men 2 and then after he rips up the golden gate bridge for no reason, in an act that would exhaust every other version of Magneto, leaving him weak as a kitten for the next few hours, because it's a ridiculous amount of energy to spend to just take a boat trip out to Alcatraz. He then stands there gloating and says, send the pawns in. And then a few seconds later, yes, yes, the pawns. It's like chess, you see, the pawns. Phoenix standing within earshots like, yeah, yeah, I completely believe all of this bullshit political rhetoric you said about how humans are going to subjugate us and they see us only as animals. When, at no point does Phoenix go, hang on a fucking second. 
She's within earshot when he uses the line, they have their weapons, we have, we have ours. ours. And he's blatantly talking about her. Yeah. And, uh, and she mean, just stands there glowering because there's been nothing written in the script that Phoenix uh, suspects that uh, Eric is treating her just as a tool. And he doesn't come across like, like a crazy person. I don't, I mean, I'm not use of the word crazy in this context notwithstanding he comes across as a nonsensical person everything he does is just again it we're back to magneto does whatever cool. the script requires him to do yeah no logic no rationale no no even internal rationale that that wouldn't make sense to somebody outside his situation but makes sense to his own internal arguments because he doesn't actually appear to have any all of his motivation comes from external sources. Yeah. But the idea of Eric being this sort of uh, Shades of Grey character that could possibly have some relationship to Charles ends uh, just before they reach Alkali Lake in uh, X-Men 2 and doesn't actually return. Never comes back. <laughs> ah, doesn't actually return until uh, First Class, in which case uh, Magneto is finally a fully formed Shades of Grey character. And fascinating with it. But yeah, no, they, they botched all of these early X-Men films in terms of character character progression for Eric. Charles gets a better turn of it for the first two films, but Charles is like, wasted in this as well. Oh, also, at one point, uh, Magneto says, they have drawn... I knew that they would draw first blood, referring to the cure. Dude, you tried to kill all humans. You drew first blood. And then some... Oh, we barely talked about the scene where Charles basically gets obliterated and seems bemused. There's not really much to say, is there? No. They go to pick up Jean. She's going ballistic. Charles, uh, Eric could at some point have stopped her, um, but doesn't. Had the cure available to him, doesn't use it. Mm. She's presented terribly in that scene as well. She's She's gone all Carrie White. Yeah. But... That's, Again, that's what she studied, Carrie. They've, they've neglected to notice that Carrie was the way she was because of how she was treated by other people. Yeah. Not because she had this immense ability inside her and that turned her into a very dangerous, evil, unrestrained force. Although the way she looks at that point... They have kind of gone with the whole she's an empty vessel blank slate. You look at her and there's nothing of Famke Jansen left in, in her appearance. They just don't seem to have done it in a particularly good way. For a short time, Storm actually wears a really kind of cool costume. It's when they go to pick she up does, yeah, Cyclops, that flight suit. Cyclops from the uh, the lake and, and he turns out to have been disintegrated. She's wearing this kind of body-hugging athletic suit with uh, shoulder pads and it's dark blue and it actually looks really cool. And it seemed like they were they were trying something out. And it actually looks like something that would allow you to move and breathe and that would be vaguely comfortable and, and that actually might not be too bad to put on a sportsman. And Because that's ultimately what you have to treat the X-Men as, athletes. But they put back on the horrible costumes later. And this last stand that we're talking about, six X-Men, five of whom have been barely characterized throughout the whole three-movie series. Two of whom aren't even fucking named! But it doesn't really matter. I've, I've got here the battle is almost entirely composed of one-liners and moves which are set up so that the one-liners can be delivered at the appropriate time. It's, yeah. it's not really a battle. It's a, a, a the script writers showing off and 
badly. This film is a joke and a bad one. If you if you watched it in conjunction with Avengers, you would wonder what the fuck Fox spent the money on. It's it's not even the same league. It's not even the same sport as the Avengers in terms of the potential for big superhero blockbusters. Oh, and Juggernaut says, I need a pee. Vinnie Jones would say, I want to piss. I know it just sounds like nitpicking, but, you know, I need a... It's like, uh, every single line in this film serves to Spartan kick me out of the picture and make me think about the what the process of idiots that actually were put together to make that. As far as uh, I'm the Juggernaut bitch goes, I'm going to play a bit of this horrible, painful clip which I'm sure loads of you have seen on YouTube. It wasn't funny then. It's not funny now. It apparently is something that Brett Ratner found hilarious. And uh, he, he put it on his website uh, because it's just that good. It's, I mean, if you haven't ever seen it before, just imagine that a bunch of bozos uh, have dubbed themselves in their living room over a bit of the X-Men cartoon. And it's got really... Uh, creepy undertones of rape and sexual violence to it. So, enjoy. Yeah, it's the juggernaut, bitch. Yeah, Charles, I'll beat the shit out of you. Get off me, bitch. Who the fuck are you? Uh, what the fuck is wrong with you? I'm the juggernaut, bitch. I'm just a motherfucker. I'm going to whoop your ass. Silly bitch. Your weapons cannot harm me. Don't you know who the fuck I am? I'm the juggernaut. Hey. hey. Oh, yes, motherfucker. I forgot. Your mama doesn't do Charles. Shut the fuck up, Charles. I'm going to beat your ass. <laughs> Too fast, Weaver. You better run, Charles. Get that shit out of my face, bitch. Don't you know the fuck I am? Oh, she's fucking with my helmet. I got this shit in fourth grade. Oh, no! My face. Pimp-smack your ass, bitch. You my hooker now. Now it's time for me to take my prize. I'm gonna rape you, bitch. You ready? You ready? You ready, huh, bitch? You ready, bitch? Shut the fuck up, Charles. Shut the fuck up. Charles, no! Charles, you got my head. I'm the judge of my bitch. This goes on for nine minutes. It has six million views. I weep for all humanity. And it was allowed, nay positively encouraged, to infect the X-Men movie universe by half-wits. Don't you know who I am? I'm the juggernaut, bitch! How he could say anything at that point, given that knowing how Kitty Pride's powers work, she's fused his pelvis with the concrete at that point. Fortunately, the filmmakers don't know how Kitty Pride's powers work. No, they don't, because then he rips free of the floor, which... Is made of polystyrene. So it would appear. And then he bonks his head, and he may as well have tweeting birds at that point. It's also important to note, by the way, that the target audience for this, kids, like Lyra, who sits in rapt attention watching the Marvel Cinematic Universe, she wandered off about 20 minutes into the film and didn't come back till the very end. She was bored out of her mind. So this doesn't even appeal to kids. Although they were really, really trying. The scene in which Pyro faces down... Uh, Bobby, I can't yeah. even call him Iceman. He's far too young for me to refer to him as Iceman at this point. Um, but you've got this this firepower versus ice power, and oh my god, were they trying Just... to evoke Goblet of Fire at that point? Yeah, which came out a year previously. Indeed. Just so in time for people to copycat. We'll stop making the Harry Potter parallels if you do. And I don't understand why the only solution to Jean going 
Phoenix shit and blasting the whole entire island is Logan sacrificing himself to basically walk up there and stab her. I mean, they are surrounded by cartridges of the cure. They have Leech right there. Get him sneaked up behind her, problem solved. There's no tactical understanding in the... Uh, I don't know. It, it, it comes down to the fact that they, they had to kill Phoenix for the terrible things she'd done. You can't just cure her and bring back Jean. I don't know. The, this you is, say that, it's been done. <laughs> yeah. This is a horrible and depressing movie. And I really wish it hadn't been made. It even finishes this, like, it's like, the X-Men trilogy is now over. It's like, seriously, that was a trilogy? Okay, right. So, it's it's all happy now. Humans and mutants, you know, mutants have the, the option of having the cure or not. And humans are all happy about it. There was almost no human, like, non-mutant perspective on the cure. You got all these people demonstrating outside the uh, clinic going, we don't need a cure, we don't need a cure. What about on the other side of the street, a fuck ton of humans going, yes, you do. It seems like the mutants are the only ones who have any perspective on this particular scenario. What about other billions of people who got a pretty severe migraine a few months ago? I don't know, it could have been a few years ago, considering how long Jean's hair has grown underwater. Oh, yes, that's the other thing. The Phoenix Force is apparently capable of complete makeovers. (sighs) <sighs> so yeah this one's going to be superman threed out of continuity i believe mm-hmm. uh, by it, brian singer who's keen on doing that sort of thing the reason it makes me so angry and i will admit this is because i was so looking forward to a phoenix film oh yeah and they fucked the phoenix story now and when you fuck up a story like this it really can't be done again for quite some time they're never going to be able to do Wolverine origin the proper way, the actual uh, uh, story as written by Paul Jenkins because of X-Men Origins Wolverine, which pretty much covers everything in that book in 12 seconds of intro. Cheers for that one. <laughs> Thanks for that one. Didn't need to be done. Oh, dear me. So would you recommend this film for people? I would not. No. Uh, in I, fact, I, I would say not only don't watch this film, but, but just siphon in- awareness of it from your head it doesn't exist i would say i would like it to be struck from history but i think i think fox are going to do that anyway (laughs) (laughs) do you reckon but no because you see those who fail to remember history are doomed to repeat it history is won by the victors and in this case any x-men film that follows this can only be better than x-men 3 we shall see with x-men origins colon wolverine coming very soon to a rant near you. Any other bits and bobs? I'm just going to go through my notes here. Oh, we didn't mention Ben Foster as Angel. Oh, he was shit. <laughs> Moving on. That's probably why we didn't mention him. <laughs> ben Foster, have you ever seen 310 to Yuma? He will not allow anybody else to act in the room if he can't go, Nicholas caging it. He was opposite Christian Bale and tried to out-mad him. Imagine trying to be in a film with Christian Bale and Russell Crowe and shouting, look at me, look at me. That's Ben Foster. <laughs> he sounds like a charmer. He's kind of perfectly cast in 30 Days of Night, where it's like, yeah, try to run, try to hide. They're coming. Look at me, look at me. I'm the vampire familiar. Oh, my God, that was him? Yeah. What an eccentric performance. Good grief. It just shows what you can do to a man by not letting him shave for a couple of days, doesn't it? Yeah. Because 
Warren's supposed to be this sort of, well, angel, you know, devastating Beautiful. good looking. Yeah. Like uh, Chris Hemsworth should have played him. Or Matthew McConaughey a few years ago. Yeah, he's yeah, probably but... a bit past it now. Yeah. Oh, also, the bit where Storm, like, she does several, like, spinny, twisty hurricane spins around to, like, move around. Storm never does that in the comics, though. They just made this shit up. And unfortunately, they made Halle Berry spin around, like, spun by wires. And she was violently sick. That's something you really can do just with CGI. It's not going to look any better. Maybe that was the deal. You want more pay, Halle Berry? Fine. (laughs) You're going to work for it. Oh, and at the very end, when Magneto goes, I'm moving a chess piece, and it really does move. It's not like the end of Inception where you're like, did it stop? Is it about to stop? It it moves. That implies the cure isn't absolute, and that you can get stabbed with three the cures and still be not at all cured. So it's kind of like everything, every event in this film is all bollocks. Because the mutants can be cured, and yet the cure doesn't actually work. And, you know, Charles can be killed, but the Grim Reaper doesn't actually work. And Magneto could be stopped, but he'll still come back. I'd like to know, actually, this is a completely futile line of discussion, because given the things that happen in this, that they completely and utterly fail to give any rational explanation for, why on earth should they give any rational explanation for this one? Mm -hmm. How does Charles possess the mind of a man in a vegetative state? Where is the seat of his telepathic powers? Because if he is a mutant... As in, born with a gene that causes his brain to develop in such a way that it has telepathic powers. It's got to have an anchor to his his, uh, mutant body. Exactly. Once you've shredded that body into so many molecules and scattered it to the four winds, is it it his soul? Have we gone totally metaphysical here? It's his astral projection. He's able to move about. Where is that astral astral projection from? Sequel. Why? Sequel. 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 That's the answer. I know you tell me I have to have more of an argument than. But if they don't, I don't have to. Sequel. It's the only answer and explanation. And of course it fucking worked because he's back. (sighs) See you later, folks. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And your handshake complete. Shredded to pieces. Fucked. Is it cool?
sequel? 